times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared, enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. The sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. This is it, dear listeners. This is the closing chapter, the final countdown, the end of the season. What in the wide, wide world of Cummings? I hear you yelling. It's only episode 23. Your seasons are 25 episodes, plus multiple bonus episodes for season pass holders. You are screaming right now at me, and you're quite right. But of course, I'm not talking about the No Sleep Podcast, Season 17. I'm talking about the camping season. For those of you who don't regularly venture into the great outdoors, you may not know that the camping season typically lasts around six to eight months, and then the site is typically closed down for the off-season. Of course, it's only May, which is usually around when the season begins, but I'm not talking about that either. Oh, you know what I mean. It's the Goat Valley Campground's season finale. And I'm torn about this one. On one hand, a finale is always exciting, filled with drama, intrigue, and goats. On the other, it means that the Goat Valley Campgrounds are closing down for the year. Does this mean our beloved hero, Kate, will get a break? Does Goat Valley even have an off-season? Well, maybe we'll find out about that down the line. That is, if we haven't been banned from the campsite for bad behavior. There was that one wild party that resulted in Brandon almost drowning in a lake, and the time we bought ice, and the time we got yelled at for playing pet sounds at max volume on repeat. Ah, but who knows? Maybe if we ask author Bonnie Quinn nicely, we'll be given another year's worth of complimentary passes. For now, though, before we bid adieu to all things GOAT, it's time for episode 23 of the No Sleep Podcast. In our first tale, we join Robbie. After the loss of his mother during a thunderstorm as a child, He's always struggled with an acute fear of the violent weather pattern. Therapy helps, but not entirely. And in this tale, shared with us by author D.D. Wickman, when Robbie becomes trapped in his car due to an unexpected storm, he must confront the root of his fear. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett and Tanya Milosevic. So don't take shelter under trees. Don't stand out in the open. 
and don't wave a large metal rod in the air. If you do, you might end up developing astrophobia. One of my earliest memories is walking hand in hand with my mom through an open field. It was raining so hard that it felt like God had turned on a faucet. We'd been picking mushrooms all day, and I sloshed around with a pair of boots that were way too big for my feet. Mom was holding my hand, when suddenly there was a lightning strike. Night turned to day. It felt like the crackling light hung in the air for minutes, illuminating the entire world. I felt so small. The ground roared. I screamed and cried. I'd never seen anything like it before, and it felt like the world was coming to an end. For the first time in my life, my mom didn't pick me up. She didn't comfort me, and she didn't tell me things would be okay. She didn't do any of these things, because she was gone. All that was left was a basket of mushrooms and a smell of ozone. I grew up with my dad in a small town called Tomskog, Minnesota. We lived in a three-bedroom, single-story house just off the main road, a stone's throw from a nearby fishing lake. Dad tried his best to give me a normal childhood, but I was always the kid whose mom abandoned him. Every adult pitied me, and every kid teased me. Half-bat, they used to call me, like I was half-batman or half-an-orphan. I hated that nickname. But things change. My dad remarried when I was ten, and kids went from calling me half-bat to more conventional slurs. Preschool became elementary school, which turned into high school. I did pretty well on the basketball team, and the nickname half-bat made a resurgence as a celebration. I'm a pretty good jumper. But there was one thing that never changed. My fear of thunder. There was always that feeling that if I didn't look away from a lightning strike, I'd get stuck staring at it. I'd stay there forever, listening to the ground tremble with power. Just thinking about it sends a shudder through me. I can imagine myself falling into that light. Falling forever. My body vibrating until there's nothing but dust. My mom's hand just out of reach. That's how I feel. My therapist calls it astrophobia. A lot of people underestimate how bad it is. It isn't just being scared, it's being terrified to the point where it swallows my life. I have three different weather apps, all on storm alert. I know at least a week in advance before there's even a chance of a storm hitting us. I have to work and sleep near windows so I can see if there are rain clouds gathering outside. If there's a storm coming, my nerves are just ruined for days in advance. I can't eat or sleep. The very thought of that overwhelming power lurks around every conscious thought. You know that feeling where you're falling? That bump before you go to sleep? Imagine that, but you're stuck there, falling, gasping for air. That's my life. I've tried anxiety medication, therapy, and various behavioral exercises. Things have gotten better, but I can never really live an ordinary life. Sure, I no longer panic at gusts of wind, but when those dark clouds start gathering, I don't know for sure what is going to happen to me. I feel like there's something up there, 
ready to just reach down and grab me. But all that aside, I've done pretty well for myself. After high school, I got a job at a local logging company. Payroll and administration mostly, but it's a good job. My dad had a similar job for an exotic imports company, but they moved to Kansas City. He made a difficult decision to move along with the job, meaning I could keep the house. Living alone in a three-bedroom house might seem neat, but a lot of people underestimate just how much work there is to do. That place may be yours, and you may do what you want with it, but there's no one to blame but yourself when things go wrong. And things will go wrong. Ask anyone who's ever had to fix a washing machine. By now, I've had that job for 12 years. The nickname Half Bat is, at best, mentioned in passing on Twitter. I've never managed to find anyone that could stand my company longer than a few months, so I still live in that house by myself. Sure, I have a pet frog, but that doesn't account for much. I love him, though. I call him Buddy. Up until a year ago, life was simple. Over the years, I'd gotten an economics degree from a nearby community college, and the pay raise that came with it really opened some doors. I got a job offer from an old high school buddy that was starting up a business in Indianapolis, but I turned it down. When you've worked at the same place for 12 years, it's no longer about loyalty. It turns into inertia. That's one way to sum up most of my life. Still, I can't complain. There are plenty of positives to being at peace with yourself. Eating at your favorite restaurant every Friday. Talking to the same people. Going to the same cinema. Listening to the same radio. There's comfort in it. But there's also a matter of feeling safe. When things stay the same, it gets easier to spot when something is about to go wrong. And something went wrong last July. The tunnel I used to get to work flooded. All traffic was rerouted to a tiny one-lane gravel road that snaked through a birch forest. In the morning, it was beautiful and green, but the foliage made it harder for me to keep track of clouds at night. It put me on edge. Not much, but a little. It was Friday. I'd had a long day at work. Summers are a busy time, and we were having some problems finding temp workers for replanting season. I stayed late to go through some job applications with our HR rep, and then stayed later still to get a head start on our tax deductibles. By the time I was done, it was well past 8 p.m., and the sky was getting dark. I could feel my pulse rising as I walked to my car. The air was humid, and the sky was darker than usual. There were plenty of telltale signs of a sudden rainstorm. As I locked myself in my car, I was on the edge of hyperventilating. None of my alerts had warned me. This thing came out of nowhere. I put on my headset and dialed my therapist, Dr. Henriksen. She talked to me for a few years after taking over for Dr. Michaels. We'd made some progress, but therapy is mostly about maintenance rather than miraculous breakthroughs. I'd only called her emergency number once over the past four years. I once locked myself in my basement and couldn't make myself leave, not knowing if a storm outside was truly gone. Now I needed her help to get home. If I didn't leave soon, I could get stuck out there. And if I panicked while driving, I could get in a serious accident. I put the keys in the ignition as the first dial tone came through. It took three rings before she answered. A few raindrops spattered on the windshield. My heart skipped a beat. Robbie? Are you okay? Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, uh... I was having trouble thinking. 
There'd been no alerts on my phone, no forecast warning me. July weather can shift rapidly, but this was ridiculous. I, I can't get home. I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. It's raining. You're doing fine, Robbie. Remember what we say about control. You're in control. I'm in control. It was a common mantra. To forget the illusion that our bodies control us and embrace the fact that we can steer our emotions. By acknowledging how we're affected, we can control the way we respond. Comforting words aside, I was having trouble staying rational. Mind over matter seems reasonable on paper, but paper can't stop a lightning strike. Are you at home? Are you safe? No, I'm, I'm, I'm in my car. I'm going home. Robbie, are you in any condition to drive? I, I don't know. I, I think so. Put both hands on the steering wheel. Can you do that? I could, and I did. There were more raindrops now. The wind was picking up. I could see my hands shake. I'm in control. All right. I'll stay with you. Keep breathing. Feel your lungs. Things were going pretty well, all things considered. I stayed on the main road, turned on the windshield wipers, and tried to take long breaths. I forced myself to stay in control, to occupy my mind. Dr. Henriksen didn't say anything, but I could hear her stay on the line with me. The single-lane gravel road was nothing but mud. Tracks from the other cars were almost five inches deep, and I couldn't see a single piece of gravel. The tracks were filling up with rainwater. The road was slightly uphill, and I was starting to have doubts. I'd be stuck out there, in the woods, with a force of nature homing in on me. I felt the clouds reaching out to me. I was an ant under a magnifying glass. I stepped on the gas. Make or break, I was at least gonna try. The tires immediately spun, and I drifted backwards. I had to reverse back onto the main road. I hit the brakes and buried my face in my hands. I don't... I don't know what to do. What do I do? Can you go back? I could, but there was no shelter in the admin building. I might as well just stay in the car. I'd considered this scenario before and talked extensively about it in previous therapy sessions. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm screwed. <laughs> oh my god. Look, Robbie, you always have a choice. If you can't go back, you have to try again. So I did. I put the car in reverse again, gained some distance, then stepped on the gas. I got further this time. When the tires once again started to spin, I was afraid I'd lose control completely. I slid in and out of the tracks until I finally got some traction. I cheered, and Dr. Henriksen cheered along with me. I passed the hill and started crawling through the birch forest, inches at a time. I got to a small clearing when the wind suddenly stopped. I could hear my heart beating as I looked out to the passenger side. Something was coming. I felt it in the air. Robbie, is everything... The call disconnected. I held my breath. The car was stuck. Suddenly, there was no rain. Not a drop. I stared out at the open clearing, watching the dark clouds twist and swirl above. It was like staring down a wild animal. I couldn't turn my back on it. I was frozen in place. Then, lightning struck. That same 
terrifying vein of light. It spread across the clouds and spiked into the clearing. I couldn't look away. I was lost in it, just like I'd been when I was a kid. I could feel my eyes burn and my body aching to run. Still, I stayed, and I stared, hands on the wheel. I realized I was conscious enough to think. I could count. Several seconds passed, and still the lightning hung in the sky. The world was still bursting with white light, but the sky hadn't begun to tremble with thunder yet. I was looking at the frozen bolt when I noticed something glittering in the air outside the car. The raindrops hung in midair, as if suspended from the clouds. Time stood still, and my eyes were fixed on the lightning. My fear had reached a level beyond panic. My mind broke. I couldn't help but laugh as I felt the adrenaline tickle my nerves. <laughs> Dr. Henriksen, you, you wouldn't believe. I just gave up. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and I had to make sure I wasn't dreaming. My whole life I'd been told that lightning strikes were instant and deadly. Yet here it hung like a thin tree from a vast, dark canopy. I stepped out of the car. I forced myself through the deep mud and onto the grassy field. I could feel the hairs on my body standing up, my mouth tasting copper. The burning in my eyes was replaced by a gentle warmth, and my pounding heart settled into a steady, forceful beat. I was through the looking glass, finally confronting my fear. It was comforting, but I wasn't alone. Silhouettes. People coming out of every corner of the field. At first a handful, then a dozen. In a few seconds, a hundred. People stepped out of seemingly nowhere, all to watch this deadly spectacle. Strangers walked past me, just a few feet away. Some young, some old. Some dressed, some naked all enraptured by the lightning. We were drawn in like moths to a flame. A surge was moving through the field, white tendrils whipping back and forth like snakes, sparks flying, stinking of ozone. As the strangers around me stepped closer to the center of the field, I could see them degenerating, hair sloughing off, skin rotting, clothes turning moldy and damp, falling off in chunks, they were leaving trails of their own bodies behind them, like slugs dragging themselves across sandpaper. Then, as the tendrils inched closer, they turned to dust, popping soundlessly, like balloons. Quiet. I locked eyes with a young woman standing hand in hand with a little boy on the other side of the field. I couldn't stop myself from recognizing her. Her mushroom basket still held tight, the boy with boots too big for his feet. Her eyes were turning to coal, her lips drawn back in a skeleton smile, her long hair curling up and burning. She was looking at me. Time didn't matter anymore. This was happening, had already happened, and would happen again. Mom, the instant the tendril touched her leg, she let me go. She didn't take me along. Not then. Not now. Thunder. 
I woke up in a hospital. Apparently, I'd had a seizure, and Dr. Henriksen had called 911. My car had been towed, and I'd been out cold for close to 16 hours. Everything smelled like ozone, and my legs were shaking. My dad drove up from Kansas City to be there when I woke up. My stepmom brought me jelly beans. I want to say I haven't been scared of lightning since that night, but that'd be a lie. Now I know there's something waiting for me. There's something happening that has already happened and will one day happen again. That light will come for me someday. I know it. Those tendrils will reach for me. I took a job in Indianapolis. I figured a change of scenery would do me well and that staying away from that open field was the sensible thing to do. I brought my pet frog with me. Buddy is adapting better than I am. Still, it is nice to be half-bat again. High school friends have a way of clawing their way back into your life. But even here, even now, I can't shake the feeling that this isn't over. Lightning. The veins that pump the blood of forces beyond our control. If anything, I'm closer to that white tendril than ever before. I see things at night. Translucent people walking through the street, searching for the next storm. Sometimes, just before the rain starts, I get the taste of copper in my mouth. And sometimes in my dreams, I see my mom. Her eyes of coal looking past the comforts I've built in life. Her strands of hair curling up like dying insects and evaporating. A pale white skull revealing itself, inch by inch. It all seems so shallow. Next time she might bring that boy along. I might be an old man by then. We'll go beyond the storm together. To the sound of deafening thunder. Then quiet. A family bereavement is difficult. So is the aftermath. When your child is struggling with a loss that you also feel, what do you do? Well, in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Taus, a road trip and a heartfelt chat might be in order. But maybe there's more than grief at play here. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell and Erica Sanderson. So let's buckle up and go for a ride through the beautiful English countryside. At least, that's what it looks like to us, anyway. You have to wonder how it appears through her eyes. Standing in the doorway squinting into daylight that she rarely sees these days. My daughter, Fiona, watches me cleaning the car. She's probably judging, too. Bin bag full of countless coffee cups and takeaway cartons. Hardly a snapshot of a life to be proud of. Feeling the irony after insisting yesterday we take the drive together, I offer a smile. Ready, darling? Over recent days, she's become more sullen than usual. Today, she looks especially withdrawn, exhausted, in fact. 
pallid skin emphasizing sunken eyes. Sometimes I stand by her bedroom door, listening to her tossing and turning, crying, moaning, mumbling under her breath. It breaks my heart. Her mother's death hid her for six, and I feel like a helpless bystander, witnessing the echo of who she once was. Without a word, she saunters over to the car and slinks into the seat. Isn't time supposed to heal, not let things bleed out? Jenny's voice plays in my head. Look through her eyes, not yours. Judging, always fucking judging. Emptying the box of rubbish into the already full recycle bin only compounds self-disgust. It was all couscous and fresh veg when Jenny was around. I'd tried for a while, I really did. But just like with my marriage, it wasn't long before I started with the shortcuts. Always looking for the easy route was another of Jenny's favourites. We were seeing a counsellor when Jenny got the diagnosis. Umpteen sessions in, but we seemed to be sinking further into each other's misery. If truth be told, I think news of the illness only made her resent me more. That she would be spending her last few weeks with someone she no longer respected. Feeling like giving up before even starting, I fall back into the driver's seat. Where are we going anyway? No eye contact, staring straight ahead, wearing her face like a declaration of war. You might want to shut your door first. She refuses to move, lips pursed, not even a blink. I'll do it then. I thrust myself from the car, making a big deal of marching to her side. It happens even quicker these days. The accelerated heart rate, the bass playing in my ears, the fizzing in my veins. By the time I get there, I'm ready to slam that door so fucking hard she'll have to give me something. Instead, I count to three and let the door go, declining her invitation. Damned if I'll fail before I begin. I get back into the driver's side. I don't know, love. Away from all the distractions. Just you and me. She crosses her arms and snaps her head to the left. Sounds like a riot. Seatbelt, darling. Nothing. She recoils as I reach over and fasten her in, her face twisting into a scowl as cold as her aura. Holding my tongue, I start the engine and slowly bring the car out of the weed-infested driveway, noting how morose the house looks these days. A shadow of its former self, too. How's school? Is this what we're going to talk about? I'm just interested. How's Tara? Who's Tara? Your friend. Clara? You mean Clara? She offers a muted laugh and angles even further away. Clara's dead to me. What has got into you lately? All that's missing is a cigarette and a tumbler of whiskey. I try my best, biting my lip through her reticence, but the words bounce relentlessly and violently in my head. I said, what the hell has got into you? There you are, Daddy. I wondered where you'd gone. Streets are packed full of families enjoying the first day of the school holidays, or at least pretending to. Regardless, smiles and projected contentment take us further towards an inevitable crescendo. I'm doing my best, Fee. It's weak, I know, and it gets the silence it deserves. 
As we leave the city behind, the smell of wildflowers and manure begins displacing some of the heaviness, and it's tempting to hope the air will just blow it all away. I guess the mere thought only lends weight to Jenny's case. Still winning from six feet under. Weeks have passed since cancer finally finished the job, and so far Fee and I have only gone through the motions. She won't talk, detests my touch, even getting her to look at me is a battle. The conversation is more than a little overdue. We need to talk about things. Sensing what is coming, she refolds her arms and directs her gaze to the line of trees. She would have wanted us to get on, Fee, talk things through. I feel my fingers tightening around the wheel as she mumbles something under her breath. Fee, I said- You haven't got a clue what she wanted. The bass intensifies, fingers coiled so tightly they're beginning to ache. Through her eyes, I understand, Fee. I know how close you both were. You were never here. Always looking for an easy route. Now, that's not true, Fee. I was- Sleeping with the tart from work. I open my mouth to speak, but shock ties my brain in knots. Only a garbled croak emerges. I feel her eyes on me. What's wrong, Daddy? She would have wanted us to talk things through. Bland colours merge into each other as I try and focus on the thin strip of grey ahead. I knew it was never going to be easy. But this isn't something I rehearsed. Mummy was hurting, Daddy. Hurting so bad. How could you do such a thing? Easy route. I told Jenny... I couldn't live with myself, but I can't believe she would tell Fee that she would leave us with this. Your mother and I talked about it. I made a big mistake, Fee, a colossal one. I ended it as soon as Mum got sick. I That's what you told Mum, but you didn't end it, did you? And Mummy knew. I was so tired, beside myself with grief and worry, and she listened. I did try and end it, but I got so lonely, so weak. She made me feel like I was more than just a carer and a father, as though I was a whole person with needs and wants of my own. I swear, Fee, it- Mummy said you'd try and squirm from the truth. What kind of man cheats on his dying wife, Daddy? Guilt and discomposure twist my insides as I search for my next words. How did Jenny know that I saw her again? Did she have people watching me? We were careful. So careful. She was surprised you told her in the first place. But I guess from her deathbed there wasn't a lot she could do. Fee, I... Don't you think that's weak, Daddy? Stop it, Fee. Stop what? We're just talking things through, aren't we, Daddy? That's what you wanted, isn't it, Daddy? Blood pounds in my head, and I can taste copper at the back of my mouth. The heavy canopy above locks in the dimness, and I see no light ahead. Come on, Daddy. Let's chew the fat, shoot the shit, spill the beans. The sequence throws me. But she's always been an avid reader, like her mum. Picking up slang, throwing down lines. Jenny could disarm me any time she wanted with a quote from one of her self-help books that littered the house. Okay, Fee. Okay. I take in the heavy cologne of the surrounding woods forcing myself into relative composure. The crows caw impatiently, 
as if anxiously awaiting the show. Your mother and I had been struggling for a while. We were... Young when you married. Mother said you'd try that bullshit. My teeth dig further into my lip, and my knuckles turn stark white against the black plastic. It sounds as if the crows are mocking me now. Sorry, Daddy. Carry on. But I think you can do better. I think you can do better. One of Jenny's favourites that used to drive me through the fucking roof. Inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Sometimes people change, and expectations can... (laughs) The crackle of laughter surprises me. She puts one hand to her mouth and frantically waves the other towards me as if I'm little more than hilarious. My instinct is to scream at her to stop. But I've no control here. She has it all. Goddamn fucking crows. Finally, she wipes a tear from her right eye and recomposes. Oh, oh you're a hoot, Daddy. Just, It's just like Mummy said it would be. I don't even know where we are anymore. Ain't that the truth? What do you mean by that? Like Mummy said it would be. Oh, she's been coming to see me. Said she couldn't stand being apart. So she came back. My mind races with responses, but I resist. Through her eyes. Sweetheart, I know that's what you want more than anything in the world, but your mum is gone. Deep down, you know she can't come back. The dead can't come back. I can't very well leave it like that. But I promise you'll get to see her again one day. Your promises mean as much to me as they did to her. Inhale. Three. Two. One. Exhale. Fee, I'm not perfect. I'm flawed. But your mum wasn't the most. Don't you dare. We're no further on. Possibly in a worse place than before. And now I have the conjuring of her mother to contend with. Fuck. The road is getting windier, hillier, and the canopy above is thicker than ever. The abundance of dancing crows blocking out even further light. Don't try and fix it. Just listen. I hated that she was right all the time. How long has she been coming back for? I relax my grip on the wheel. Fee lets out a deep sigh, but her body loosens. Only recently. I prayed every night. But last week, she stepped out of the shadows for the first time. This could be it. The connection. What did she look like? I mean, was she... Like an angel. What did she say? She said a lot. Like what? That you always resented having a child. My hope fades. No, that's simply not true. Absolutely... You wanted an abortion. My mind struggles to keep up. I'm out of my depth and sinking fast. I was just young, but I swear I never regret having you. I love you. I swear, I swear. Do you swear you never had a drinking problem too? This fucking goddamn road is endless. And that you never stayed at work just to avoid us? Do you swear that you never refused to take the paid leave your boss offered? That you never cursed the day you ever met her? Enough, Fee. That you wish you would just get on and die? The crows are deafening now. 
hopping from one foot to the next, an excitable audience watching the carnage unfold. I open my mouth to defend myself, but I have nothing. Don't you want to talk anymore, Daddy? With the back of my sleeve, I wipe the moisture from my eyes. This drive was supposed to fix things, heal wounds, bring us closer together. But I feel even further apart. It doesn't make sense. Differences aside, I can't imagine Jenny ever putting her daughter through this much pain. Feeding her with this bile, it just wasn't part of... Daddy? When did she tell you all this, Fee? I told you. She's been coming to see me. Came last night, too. Feeling a sudden chill, I wind the window up. But it doesn't help. My skin crawls and tightens. I'm trembling. Can't think straight. Can't focus. The crow's only slightly dampened cries continuing from gnarly branches. I don't know how to deal with any of this. She asked me if I wanted to stay with her. I'm so fucking cold, yet I can feel beads of sweat rolling down my cheeks as violence erupts within. I want to roar, drown everything out. Hairs bristle on the back of my neck and blood pulses relentlessly across my forehead. Your mother's dead, Fee. To you, maybe. This can't be normal. How the fuck am I supposed to deal with this? Fee, we watched her wither away to nothing. She's in a box underground and there's no coming back. She shakes her head. I've seen her. Felt her breath against me. I'm losing it. Sinking into a quagmire of confused anger. And there's nothing I can do. Fee, she's as dead as dead can be. Taking a dirt nap, a bag of bones and an ounce of gristle. My fist slams into the centre of the steering wheel, sending the horn blaring and birds flapping wildly from their branches into the road. Nothing but fucking worm food! Fee's sullen and pale face remains unchanged, much like her mother's used to after one of my childish outbursts. I said yes, Daddy. I'm going to stay with Mummy. It's unfair that I need to deal with this kind of fallout. Stop this nonsense, Fee! I snap my foot down hard on the accelerator to take us up the rise of a hill. She kissed me, Daddy. Stop it, Fee! Breathed me in. Left just enough for today. Please stop talking like this, Fee. Just stop it. Insisted I came for the drive to say goodbye. I turned to her, noticing her skin even paler than before against the starkness of the seatbelt. For fuck's sake, Fee! But I have to go now. Mummy said the veil is closing. Fee, will you please shut the f- Daddy! As I instinctively bring the wheel hard left, my mind takes a delayed snapshot of the bottom of the hill. Half a dozen crows basking in a spotlight of sun. A grotesque and withered body at their center. But the face... To the sound of twisting metal, the world becomes a furious kaleidoscope of greens and browns, I'm weightless, surrounded by floating glass. Grimacing for pain, I close my eyes, the soundtrack of violence bleeding into my ears. It feels like it will never end, until it does. My head roars, my insides are on fire. 
Silence prevails, albeit the sound of spinning tires. I unscrew my eyes to see the bow of a branch protruding from the center of my chest like a deformed extra limb. Something's leaking inside. Fee. Nothing. Fee. Pain fires up my arm as I give her a gentle shove. Fee. Her head lollops to the side. A string of saliva extends towards the floor. Fee. Please. The wheels stop spinning. Even the crows are quiet now. And strangely, my pain is beginning to subside. I reach towards her colorless body and feel for a pulse. Not a mark on her, but she's gone. Breathed me in. Left just enough for today. And in the rearview mirror, I see her amongst the crows. Ethereally hovering over the carcass, she reaches towards the body and a frail, spindly arm lifts from the ground. Jenny's face. But that isn't her. Fee! No! As my little girl helps the thing to its feet, it coils its spindly fingers around one of her shoulders and brings her in close. It looks towards the car as if the gloat, covered in a cloak of spiraling dark fog, It isn't her. Anyone could see it. Perhaps, aside from a grieving daughter. Through her eyes. Only a rasp emerges as I scream after Fee. I feel nothing now. Numb. And I know I'm on borrowed time as I watch the thing that stepped out from the shadows leading my daughter away. I can see the trees through Fee's midriff only slightly distorted by the black wisps of cloud that begin surrounding her, courtesy of the darkness to her right. Tugging at the spindly arm protruding from the blackness, Fee turns to offer a solemn wave. It turns too, this vile incarnation that feeds on misery, grief and death. All that poison it fed her, all that hate, What evil would do such a thing? And what a swan song. It offers a final smile before they both disappear behind the veil of black fog. Once, long ago, I was happily recording the podcast when all the lights in my recording booth went out. So I checked on it, and it was the whole no-sleep campus. The outage lasted for a whole week, the entire team working in the pitch blackness. And then, none of us ever mentioned it again. And it's strange, because now, years later, in this tale, shared with us by author Louisa Eckert, We meet a group of people going through exactly the same horror. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Mike Delgadio, Mick Wingert, Danielle McRae, 
Wafia White, Atticus Jackson, Jesse Cornett, and Aaron Lillis. So let's chase away the shadows and listen to this one in a well-lit room, because nobody remembers when the world went dark. I've never thought about any date more. The anniversary is coming up soon. I wonder if that will help anyone remember. I was on a bus then, crawling away from Savannah. I was 19, escaping the maze of concrete that was a city, a pilgrim on the roads leading to places yet discovered, a story I'm sure was shared by so many before me. The bus had traveled just far enough that the vestiges of urbanization had dwindled to withered gas stations and cheap motels, which I couldn't appreciate enough. It was untamed wilderness. It was freedom. And soon, it would almost be the death of me. I checked my watch. 4.12 p.m., August 16th, 2019. I looked up at the windows before all of a sudden, something strange happened. Everything was black. There was nothing. For a second, I thought that I had fainted, but I could still hear the low, endless hum of the bus, and not a moment later, the screams of everyone around me. The words, I can't see anything, were a shared chorus that rose and fell when we all realized that our vision had simultaneously fled. The bus reached a swift halt, I could hear the doors swing open, releasing the stream of passengers onto the road. Last time I had looked out the window, there was nothing save the trees and straight, endless road. I stood up, gripping the seat in front of me, before moving to the aisle and pushing my way forward. I could feel hands grasp from either side, searching for something to hold on to. My feet bumped into something sprawled across the floor but I found no hesitation to continue on until I climbed out and onto the asphalt. The same commotion had continued on out there. Like so many others, I had left my backpack on the bus. So I turned around and tried to board, but the screams inside made me hesitate, and the flood of people never seemed to stop. I quickly wandered off to the grass by the bus, where the screams still reached, but gradually thinned out. I heard people talking about leaving, finding a way back to Savannah or somewhere else nearby for help. When I found the courage again, I returned to the bus doors and was prepared to climb in before someone spoke to me. Can you get my stuff? I flinched when he spoke. My food is in there, and I'm going to need it to leave. Where are you going? I couldn't fathom walking anywhere. I'm with a group of four other people. There's a military base about 20 miles out. We're going to get help. I was able to grab the man's supplies, but the meager laptop bag didn't seem like it was carrying a lot. When I located him, he was with a group of other people who I was promptly introduced to. The man who had approached me was Stephen, and he was a physician at the military base. Then there was Claudia, Tess, Marcus, and Wade. We briefly shared hypotheses about the situation. A gas leak was the only reasonable one that surfaced. 
We tried to find a way to call the police from each other's cell phones, but either we couldn't find our phones, or none of them worked. But Stephen promised us that if we contacted the military, we would all be rescued, and they would help us regain our vision. Marcus was the one who created the roll-calling system. It was the only way to recognize who was nearby. Marcus would shout, Roll call, and we'd all repeat our names like in a classroom. Claudia, Wade, Stephen, then me, Chris, and Tess. Once that was instituted, we turned to Stephen for any direction to the military base. We're on a road that goes straight there. We just continue forward. So we did just that. Most of the other bus-formed groups split off, wandering their own ways, branching off into the surrounding open woods. I never knew what they were looking for. Some followed us towards the base, but after a while, we gained considerable ground against them until we never heard them again. Every so often, one member of our group would stop and place their hand on the ground, just to confirm that we were still on the road. Even in a situation like ours, Things seemed to slip our mind, and the asphalt would seem to blend in with the rest of our senses, despite the loss of one. We would talk to keep our minds off it, venturing through random topics of our lives, playing games, racing each other. A while passed before Marcus's voice escaped the front of the group. Wait, there's something wrong here. When I walked up to him, I could feel my feet fall off the road and into the grass. Does the road end? No, it splits. Marcus was right. I moved to my left, then my right, and felt the asphalt continue. The realization set in for all of us as we wandered between the paths. There was a fork in the road. Which direction do we go, Stephen? The hesitation that followed Tessa's question wasn't reassuring. Uh, I'm not sure. I've driven this road many times. If I could just see it. You're not sure? I could hear Marcus move to Stephen. How can you not be sure? You have one job, Stephen. And if we go the wrong way to who knows where, we're completely fucked. You're no help either. The argument fumed, fueled by exhaustion and delusion. I could hear them grab at each other in the darkness before Claudia left my side and started towards them. We can't act like children. There's only one way to the military base, so we have to choose a side. Stephen exhaled before picking a road. (sighs) I think we go this way. All right. Then let's go. The rest of the group followed Claudia forward. After a while, we started to slow to a leisurely pace. I don't think any of us were suited to walk for miles as we had been plucked from our lives and thrown into an unfamiliar situation. I was only wearing everyday clothes inappropriate for long treks, and the only shoes I sported were a cheap pair of slip-ons. After a few hours of walking, I felt like the only thing left on my feet was a thin sheet of rubber. Not long after, the group called for a break. We slowed to a halt before spilling off the road and migrating to the grass nearby. I let myself fall to the ground, resting my head against the cool dirt, before Tess suddenly spoke. What time is it? I sat up. It was something that had slipped my mind. There was no indication of time now. 
The tiredness I would usually feel during the evening had already consumed me after hours of walking. Everything stood stagnant in a haze of warmth and darkness. It was around four when it happened, and I think we've been walking for three hours, so it's probably seven. We seemed content to lie down and call it a night. We all formed a little circle, watching over each other as best we could before I fell asleep. The next morning, I was awoken by Claudia, who lifted me up and insisted on starting our walk early. There was nothing to wake up to, and my stomach growled. I wondered if we would ever find food out here. Roll call. Claudia. Wade. Stephen. Chris. There was a pause. I repeated myself, but Tess's name never followed. We searched for Tess in the grass, our knees pushed in the ground, hands scouring for any vestige of her. I'm sure I looked like Velma searching for her glasses, combing through the brush. But there was nothing left of her. She must have left in the middle of the night. We just have to move on. Why would she leave? We're in the middle of fucking nowhere. But a response was never given, and we quieted down before continuing on. I wondered where she could have possibly left for. Did she go back to the bus? Did another group find her? I tried to rake my brain for any possible explanation. There was nothing else said between us. The hot sun beating down as we sluggishly sauntered forward. There was only a small understanding of our goal. To make it to the military base. To see again. But everything else was left up for us to stumble upon. Just before I was about to raise my voice to ask for a break, I heard the roar of engines project from far beyond. I was walking beside the road then, and as I heard the noises approach faster, I barely had enough time to yell. Everyone, get off the road! I could feel people fall beside me, and the vehicles rushed past before continuing on out of earshot. We all stood for a minute in silence, as the dust seemed to settle back into place. Was that the military? I considered it for a second. Maybe we had chosen the right path. Roll call. Claudia. The list abruptly stopped there. We waited for Wade's voice, but it never came. Wade? The realization hit me. I found my way back onto the road and bent down again, using my hands and feet to feel around. I came upon it faster than I expected. All I could feel was a mess of clothing pressed against the asphalt, and what I then presumed was the head. I jumped back when I felt the guts, mushy and hot. He's there. That's Wade. No one found the strength to move his body, or whatever remained of it. I could barely believe it even when we continued on and away from him. Now there were two of us gone. I couldn't shake the thought of who would be next. But after Marcus insisted that we had to keep moving, a new thought consumed me. Who were they, the people in the vehicles? If we had screamed for them to stop, would they have? Were they military or someone else? 
No one wanted to believe that the vehicles were anything else but soldiers, escaping into the city to rescue. Maybe they had found some sort of cure. The rest of the day wasn't very noteworthy. We seemed to grow tired quicker, and I could feel myself getting more and more dehydrated as the temperatures only seemed to rise. No one had food, nor water, or anything else to construct any sort of hope. We only had the military to look forward to, but at the rate we were crawling at, it seemed like a dream that we would never reach. The following day was just as similar as the last. The morning roll call was thankfully standard, and we were able to start earlier than the day before. We slept that night, thirsty and starving. At this rate, it wouldn't be long until one of us succumbed to malnutrition. But the next day brought a new hope. We were crawling along the road, our steps slow and small, until we could hear something from behind the tree line. It was voices, new and unfamiliar. Who's out there? How many of you are there? Four. We're from a bus a few miles back. Where are you? Can you see? Sticks cracked as a group of people seemingly emerged from the brush. I didn't know how many of them there were, but I already felt outnumbered. We're a family from a town nearby. We can't see anything either. My brother was hurt. Do you have a doctor? I'm a physician. Stephen moved away from my side. The rest of our group instinctively followed. We ventured deep into the woods, far enough that I began wondering why they left someone this far out. But Marcus and Stephen were engaging in an ordinary conversation with the two people, whose names we learned to be Mika and Josephine. So I tried to unarm any doubt I had about them. After a while of walking, Mika finally told us to stop. We're here. Let me go get him. He left us. I felt Claudia walk up beside me. Do you realize how long we've been walking for? I tried to shrug off her suspicion, but it bit at me, and the darkness didn't help. We stood for a little while, before suddenly I felt arms behind me pushing me forward. They threw me onto the dirt. Claudia and Stephen fell next to me, then Marcus. I heard something escape the trees, and soon it felt like we were surrounded by people. Marcus tried to regain his ground and stand up, but he was only shoved down again, this time harder. Foreign hands wrapped tape about my wrist and ankles, preventing me from any sense of movement. To my right... I could hear Claudia and Stephen struggle, as if something similar was restraining to them. Roll call. Claudia. Stephen. Chris. Be quiet. If you stay that way, it won't hurt as bad. What are you even doing? God has abandoned us. He has plunged our world into darkness and has left us to roam it blindly. But there is a way to see again. I know there is. We tried it on my brother, but it failed. I can't experiment on myself or Micah or any other family member anymore. We don't have anything left to test on. Think of yourselves as a sacrifice for the cure. We'll just start down the line. Before I barely had a second to process the situation, 
Claudia's scream escaped near me. A scream so haunting that I can recall it years later. I heard someone carry her away, so far that I couldn't hear her anymore. Then I heard Marcus lifted off the ground. He must have been only a person away from me, because I could hear Stephen beside me, begging for Mika to stop, asking him where he was taking them. The footsteps returned back to us, and then next to me. Stephen was picked up and thrown forward towards some unknown place. Just as the footsteps began their path towards me, I found the sense to scoot backwards, out of the line and away from Mika and Josephine and their group. I heard someone shouting, and as I continued to crawl away, the voices hushed, and silence consumed them. It only took me a second to realize that they were trying to hear me out, waiting for me to even so much as breathe. Close to me, I could feel their boots rise and fall, searching the grass for any remnant. After the footsteps wandered off, I was able to feel the tape bindings from my ankles. I stood up and moved in what I could only assume was forward. As I ran through the trees, I heard the sticks crack beneath my shoes, but the sound only propelled me faster. I heard a sound rising from the distance. The sound of engines. But these engines blared differently. They were louder and more numerous. Suddenly, a voice boomed across the road, and I instantly moved backwards. United States military, help coming. I ran towards the road, but the vehicles had long passed when I reached it. I collapsed on the ground, my mind and legs in a similar throbbing pain. I laid that way for what felt like hours until I opened my eyes and I was back on the bus. I lifted my watch up to my face, but I could barely comprehend the date. August 23rd, 2019. Seven days after the world had gone dark. There's always a sense of unsettled wrongness when you see something in a place it shouldn't be. A balloon in the sewers, a set of stairs in the woods, a dog in a vent. And in this story, shared with us by author C.P. Riggs, we join a man who, during a road trip hundreds of miles from any ocean, discovers something that should definitely be coastal. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis and Jessica McAvoy. So let the beacon guide you all along the watchtower to the Lighthouse of Eastern Kentucky. It was somewhere in the dark hills of Eastern Kentucky on this long straightaway through a valley. I feel that I must truly stress that there was nothing on that road. No houses, no farms, certainly no coastline. 
That made the lighthouse even more striking when I saw it. It sat back in one of those meadows wrapped into a mountain hollow. Even though the mid-afternoon sun and the floating pollen were turning everything around me gold, that meadow and that lighthouse were already bathed in shade from the mountains. I almost drove right past it, if I'm honest. It was so out of place. It was like my brain didn't recognize that it was actually there at first. And if there had been anyone else on that road, they may well have rear-ended me when I slammed my brakes, sending up dust and gravel as I skidded to a halt. It didn't even have a house attached to it, like the lighthouses I had seen in pictures and movies. No, it sat alone, black and white stripes moving up its length like a barber's pole. Only the glass at the top was still above the shadows, glinting in the afternoon sun. But even as I watched, the afternoon shade inched up the length of the thing. I, uh, I lied before when I said there wasn't anything else there. There was one thing directly across the street. One of those old motels that's just a row of rooms wrapped around a parking lot. I still can't say what it was exactly that drove me to pull into that parking lot. There was something, some train of thought that made sense at the time, but I can't remember it now. I know I sat there for minutes, right in the middle of the road, looking at the lighthouse, but I can't remember. All I remember is that for some reason stopping seemed like a good idea, and so I turned into that empty old parking lot. I half expected the place to be closed, but the neon sign buzzed red with vacancy and the door to the office opened when I pushed it. The air conditioner inside hummed and the bell over the door tinkled. The front of the office was made up of floor-to-ceiling windows that let in lots of natural light and heat. It also gave a commanding view of the entrance to the parking lot, the lighthouse and the mountains that served as the walls of this little valley. The woman that popped up from behind the counter was so ordinary looking that it actually circled back around to being almost extraordinary. I know that's strange to say. How can ordinary also be strange? But it's one of those things where something looks so ordinary that it, it crosses that line into the uncanny valley. She looked like the rough sketch of a master painter, like there would be details filled in, uh, wrinkles and smile lines and moles and imperfections. But the painter just hadn't quite gotten there yet, or had consciously erased them. She wore a burgundy polo, and her hair was blonde. I remember both of those things because, well, there wasn't much else. Even her eyes were this weird mix of blue and green with bits of brown around the iris. Her nose wasn't big or small, and neither were her lips. She was remarkably unremarkable. Can I help you? She set a book down on the counter. It was old and weathered. The spine was bent like it had been read through dozens of times. I couldn't read the title because of how she'd laid it down. I'd uh, like a room, please? She blinked like that surprised her. You want a room? Yeah. Is, is that all right? Her brain seemed to catch up to her and she moved all at once as she said, Yeah, of course. I just... Normally it's people asking for change for the payphone or something or... 
I waited for her to finish the thought, but she only let it trail off. Or see the lighthouse? She was pulling a key from a desk drawer, a small gold little thing attached to a billet of wood with a room number on it, and looked up at me, confused. Lighthouse? Now it was my turn to blink, confused. Uh, yeah, the lighthouse across the road? She looked over my shoulder out the window that faced the street. I... She opened and closed her mouth a couple times, clearly having trouble deciding on what to say. I honestly don't know what you're talking about. I looked at her, and then turned around to make sure the giant lighthouse across the street hadn't moved. It hadn't. I looked at her again, trying to decide if this was a joke or not. And if so, what the punchline was. I pointed directly at it through the window. Right there? She leaned over to follow my finger, then looked at me and shook her head. The look on her face was quickly changing from confusion to annoyance, and I decided that rather than turn into one of those customers, I'd drop the subject. I paid for my room and left her there in the hum of the air conditioner, walking down the long, cracked slab of concrete until I reached my room, right near the middle. Another question I had as I walked was why I had gotten this room in particular. My car was the only one in the parking lot, and all the windows of the rooms were dark, so how did she decide which room I got? The room was nothing special. Truthfully, it was like most other old motels I'd seen, with an old queen bed topped by a floral pattern bedspread, a little lamp and desk in the corner, and an old porcelain sink that had been white once upon a time, but was now stained yellow by age and nicotine. The place smelled of air freshener and mothballs. I only had a backpack, so I dropped it onto the floor and laid on the bed, flipping the television on. Static, I might have known. I turned it off and stared at the ceiling instead. I had been driving for multiple days by that point, and whenever I stopped for the night, some trick of the eyes made it seem that still surfaces were moving. Even as I stared at the ceiling, it seemed to be flying away from me. The paintings on the wall were all seascapes of rocky coastlines being threatened by waves and storms. They began to catch my eye as I realized they were just a bit too nice to be hung on the wall inside a crappy motel. Of course, it wasn't unusual to have paintings in a hotel room, but these were different somehow. Too detailed and, for lack of a better word, dark. Despite the fact that it was only five and the day outside was only barely descending into the hot haze of a Kentucky evening, Looking at those paintings made the room feel almost cold. Only one had a lighthouse in it. An incredibly wide painting depicting a stormy bay with dark purple clouds overhead and a ship sinking in the center. The lighthouse sat on the right side of the painting on a steep cliff. It was the same color as the one across the street with black and white stripes, but this one had a house attached. For some reason, the artist had decided to leave the lighthouse dark. The light at the top was off, and the windows of the house were all black. 
The other side of the painting was mostly empty, showing only a windswept outcrop looking down on the shipwreck below. Something about that painting, or maybe that room, began to give me a splitting headache, and I think I laid down. I, I must have, because the next thing I remember is waking up and everything being dark. The only light was moonlight or some street lamp diffusing through the sheer curtains drawn over the big window at the front of the room. The little lamp on the bedside table provided only a small yellow glow that didn't reach the cobwebbed shadows in any of the corners. I looked around the room for a moment and tried, really tried, to remember when I'd fallen asleep. But the memory simply wasn't there. I hadn't passed out since I had made it to the bed, but that period of time was simply missing. When I peeked outside, I found two surprising things. The first was that the glow through the curtains was not, as I had originally believed, the moon or a street lamp. In fact, as far as I could see, the light in the center of the parking lot didn't work, and I couldn't find the moon in the sky. Instead, the source of that light seemed to be the lighthouse. I say seemed to because a thick mist had settled across the whole valley while I'd slept, and I could barely see anything of it besides that dull blue light glowing through the sea of fog. Even as I watched, though, that dull glow began to pulse with a steady throb, like a heart beginning to beat. What I noticed second was much more gruesome. As my eyes adjusted to the dark and the mist, I began to see the figures standing mutely in the parking lot and the road, watching me with eyes and open mouths that glowed with a thin version of that same bluish light, until all the mist in the valley was colored as strange turquoise that made me shiver. I did what any normal person would do and picked up the phone to call the police, but glancing around, quickly realized that the room didn't actually have a phone. And still they stood in the curling fog as the lighthouse pulsed overhead. I opened the door and it was like walking into a pool house. The air was so thick and damp that it was hard to breathe, like being wrapped in a wet blanket. The night was warm, but the fog was cold and I wished I had a jacket. Hello? I knew they were looking at me. Those glowing eyes and mouths were facing me and there was no one else around. Who else could they be looking at? The only other light around was the dirty orange glow of the office and I made my way toward it. I decided I would go ask the office girl if she could see the dead people standing outside or if that was another one of those things that seemed particular to me. My footsteps caused a strange echo under the sidewalk awning as I walked, and I could see their glowing eyes following me. The office itself was locked, but there was a night window with a little sign that read, Please knock. When I did, she slid it open with a look of confused annoyance. Come to ask about the lighthouse again? I jerked a thumb toward the parking lot. <laughs> no, I... I came to ask about the weird dead people out in the parking lot this time. The put-upon smart-aleck look dropped off her face like a stone as she leaned through the window to look in the direction I was pointing. 
I remember having the thought that I should be more worried than I was, but I was vaguely sure this was all just a dream and I was going to wake up any minute. Even if it wasn't a dream, there was such a feeling of everything not being real that I couldn't muster up that fear. She could, though. Who the fuck are they? Yeah, her reaction is what broke that strange dream-like blanket that had been laying over me and sent my heart into my throat. Fear is contagious, and I had caught it. Oh, so you can see them. She shook her head in disbelief. Stop being a smartass, dude. Who the fuck are those people? I, I, I was hoping you would know. Fuck no! Her voice was absolutely shaking as she looked at the mute figures once again. She unlocked the door to the office and yanked me through before slamming it closed and locking it. She slammed the window too, but pressed her cheek to the glass to stare wide-eyed at the figures outside. I don't think they're coming any closer. You don't have any idea what they are? <sighs> no, asshole. I don't fucking know why a bunch of weird people with glowing eyes are standing outside my hotel. She took several quick, shallow breaths, then swallowed the panic that I could see trying to fight its way up her throat. Okay. Cops. That's what you do here. You call the cops. We're going to call the cops. She looked at me as if to make sure that was actually the correct response. I nodded. Cops. Cops. She pulled the phone from the receiver, punching the three numbers so hard that the phone's bass scooted slightly with every touch. There was a moment's silence. Yes, this is Motel 9 on Highway 12. We need help now. There's these things out there, these... They're not things, they're, they're people. They're just standing out in the fog, staring at us. I heard chatter through the phone. No, there's just one guest here and me. Please. Please hurry, we don't know what they want, and we're both really scared, and, and, and just please fucking hurry, okay? She nodded and put the phone back on the receiver. They said a car is on the way. It sounded strangely like she was trying to reassure me, but her hands were shaking and her breaths were shallow and ragged. I got a feeling that her telling me was only a way to reassure herself at this point. They didn't want to stay on the phone with you? She shook her head and sniffed. Tears welled up from the corners of her eyes, those multicolored eyes, and she dabbed at them quickly. Why would they? I was pretty sure they were supposed to, but I didn't think that now was the time to tell her that, so I shook my head. Oh, never mind. Now we just have to wait. She slid down onto the floor behind the counter, cradling her knees in front of her. They'll be here soon. She nodded to herself. They'll be here soon. I looked out the window at the figures in the fog. I had a feeling that no matter how soon the cops could be here, it wouldn't be soon enough to matter. Still, they hadn't moved, as far as I could tell, and I began to wonder what it was that they were waiting for. Hey, I, I don't suppose this is the part where you tell me about, you know, some old story from around here about things like this, is it? I didn't think it was likely, but the question filled the silence, and it was the silence that was frightening me. I had this feeling that I couldn't quite explain, and it told me that if that silence stretched on long enough, 
I would begin to hear things I didn't want to hear. She looked up at me and shook her head. She reached up onto the desk, feeling around until her fingers grasped the book she had left there and pulled it down, clutching it to her chest like some talisman. I pointed at the book. I don't suppose that's some kind of ghost encyclopedia, is it? She shook her head again. Her eyes were wide like a child's and full of tears as she laid her forehead on her knees and began to sob. It was a sound beyond fear, beyond terror or anguish, that had passed through all these emotions to land at sheer hopelessness, and it wrenched my heart. I sat down on the floor opposite her. I considered reaching out, maybe putting a hand on her arm to give her some kind of human connection or comfort, but I thought better of it. Oh, come on now, uh, that, that was a joke. We're going to fucking die. The flat conviction with which she said it felt like a slap, and the knowledge that I very well could be living my own last night here with this girl began to earnestly sink in. Still, the knowledge that this person, this girl, needed my help, if only for the next few minutes, helped me smother that panic. Hey, what's the book you're reading? She looked up at me, and then at the book she was cradling, she blinked and screwed up her face like she was trying to remember. It's, a, uh, it's, a uh, about a lighthouse. I knew if I turned and craned my neck I would be able to see that blinking light still, floating in the fog at the top of the lighthouse, a lighthouse that I could see, and she couldn't. Lighthouse? Yeah. That's why I was so weirded out when you came in earlier asking about that. I thought you were talking about the book or something. I shook my head. I don't even know the name of it. She furrowed her brow again like she was struggling to remember the name. She held it out to me, and the title read The Sins of Amy Campbell. I gave the book back to her. Huh. I don't think I ever got your name, by the way. I had given her mine earlier for the paperwork and the room key, but I offered it again. Mine is Tom. She was cradling the book to her chest again as she responded, quietly and without looking. Macy. My name is Macy Pelbam. It's nice to meet you, Tom. I started to say something else, but that's when the moans started. I thought it was the wind at first, but when it went on for a second longer than normal, I realized the truth. It wasn't just moans either, but wails and crying, too, that sounded impossibly far away. I could tell the moment she heard what little color remained in her face drained away. Before she could speak, though, the overhead light snapped out with the sound of glass breaking. Macy screamed, and I started as the darkness settled around us. The only lights now the humming red neon in the mist outside, glowing that soft blue-silver color. She was so pale, and the neon light outlined her in red as she put her head back on her knees and started sobbing again. I thought of saying something, but before I could, I watched one of those figures from the fog walk slowly up to the window and stare in. He looked at her for a long moment before turning to me. 
I didn't move, I don't think I even breathed, as I waited there, watching. It was the closest I'd been to any of the figures, and what I had taken to be dark clothes in the mist weren't actually dark, but were instead rotten rags. His might have once been an old-fashioned coat with a high collar under a thick, wiry beard that reached almost to the remains of his belt. Close up, his eyes still glowed with that same eerie turquoise color. <laughs> Macy? It turned back to look at her as she sniffed and raised her head. <laughs> what? Her eyes were puffy and bloodshot. She looked to the spot I was staring at and then back again, repeating her question. What? You don't? But the figure standing at the window looked back to me again and shook his head. Don't what? Slowly, she turned to look at the spot where the figure stood again and then back. You see something? Even as I watched, though, the figure turned and, like he had forgotten what he'd came for, purposelessly ambled off back into the mist. Why can't you see the lighthouse? The lighthouse? The one you were talking about when you got here? Yeah. Look, I thought you were messing with me when you got here. She wiped her eyes. I have no idea what you're talking about, though. There isn't a lighthouse here. I don't know what's going on, but I know there's not a lighthouse. I turned. Outside, the light was still blinking in the fog. I got that sense again that I had wandered into some dream or some part of the world that wasn't quite real. A gust of wind tugged at the mist, shrouding those figures again, and joined the faraway sounds of the moans. Do you hear that? I listened, but could hear nothing new over the moans. What? What is it? Sirens! They're here! We're all right! We're gonna be okay! Before I could say much of anything, she jumped to her feet and pressed her face to the window. I got up much more slowly, trying to listen. I, I don't hear anything. She ignored me, pressing her nose to the glass as she looked back and forth frantically. Why don't they have their lights on? I can't see them. I, I still don't hear them. How can you not? They sound like they're right outside. I knew the answer, even then. But I didn't know what to say. Right then, the spinning light that had marked the top of the lighthouse changed suddenly to a red and blue blinking like a police light. There! They went into the field! Come on! No, just wait for a second and we'll... She was already running out the door. I lunged for her arm and and I watched it pass right through my hands like more of the mist floating outside. Every part of me that touched her went cold and numb like I'd submerged it in ice water. She ran through the parking lot straight toward those waiting figures and that blue and red light flashing somewhere high overhead. She ran, and the mist and the night both swallowed her whole, closing behind her like water. I walked out into a night that smelled of wet asphalt and grass and cedar, and stood there for a moment, deciding whether to go after her or not. 
The moaning had stopped, and to this day I don't think I've ever experienced a silence as deep as that one. When I watched those figures all watching me, there were no bugs, no faraway sound of cars or trains, nothing at all. Until the screaming. I knew it was her. It wasn't even words, it was just a loud, piercing, fear-soaked scream that covered the valley like a blanket for those few seconds before it, too, receded like the tide into silence. The light above the fog turned back into that blinking turquoise and then went steady again. I stood rooted to that spot for a long time, unsure what I had seen, what I should do. I had a feeling that I I couldn't call the police. Not really, anyway. I didn't know what I would tell them if I did. Instead, I waited there in the night, hoping I'd think of something. But, but I didn't. I walked back inside, and all I found was that old paperback book thrown to the floor in her hurry to be gone. I picked it up, slid it into my pocket, and walked back to my room. Inside, I drew the curtains closed and those paintings again caught my attention. In the largest, I actually noticed something I hadn't before. On the far left of the painting, on the second cliffside that I had thought was empty, there was a small figure painted there, watching the wreckage with a tiny lantern. I wasn't sure how I'd managed to miss the detail before or why it caught my attention now, but I watched him, wondering what he must have seen why he was put in the painting in the first place. Like before, though, the longer I watched, the more my head ached until I didn't even have the strength to peek through the curtains one last time before a dreamless and painful sleep took me. I woke up the next morning feeling like I'd been hit by a bus. The curtains were open again for some reason and... Bright, harsh sunlight was filling the room. Something about the color of the walls turned in that bright sun made me sick to my stomach. And I might have vomited if I'd had anything in my stomach to vomit up. When I dragged myself out of bed, I saw that I was still the only person in the place. My little car looked even smaller in that wide, empty parking lot. The clock radio by the bed read 10.45, and I assumed the checkout was 11. I consciously avoided looking at any of the pictures on the wall while I put my shoes on. I couldn't even remember taking them off. Outside, I tried not to stare at the lighthouse as I put my bag and the copy of The Sins of Amy Campbell into the trunk of my car and walked down the covered awning to the office once again. She was still there, still reading that feathered old paperback when I walked up, seeming just as bored as she had the day before as she glanced up at me with that same look of, Oh, you again. Checking out? I nodded and handed her my key. How was your stay? Oh, a million things that I might say flashed through my mind. I... I had strange dreams... She cocked her head to the side, probably taken aback by the frankness of the answer. I know that feeling. While she closed out the stay and wrote up my receipt, I nodded at the book, laying open on the desk. Can I ask what you're reading? She looked down like she'd forgotten the book was there. 
Oh, yeah. <clears throat> it's a book about a lighthouse keeper. She forgets to light the light and causes a shipwreck, and it's about her dealing with the fallout from it and the town deciding whether it's her fault or not. It's my favorite. Is it? She slid the receipt across the desk. Yeah. Where did you first hear about it? She thought for a moment. I wish I could remember. I think it might have been a gift, maybe? Yeah, we all have things like that. She shrugged. You're all set, Mr. Mulcahy. Thanks. I never caught your name, by the way. She frowned at me, and an outside observer may well have seen just another old man trying to chat up a young lady that wanted to read. There were no outside observers, though, and she sighed as she said, Amy Campbell. I nodded. Well, thank you for your help, Miss Campbell. I appreciate it. I hope you have a good day. She squinted like she was surprised that was the end of the matter, but then nodded. You too, Mr. Mulcahy. Have a safe trip, wherever you're going. I left her there, in that little motel office. I sat in my car a long time without ever even starting it. When I pulled away, I watched the rear view until the mountains and the shimmering heat and haze of the summer day swallowed up first the motel and finally the lighthouse. I have searched for the book, The Sins of Amy Campbell, multiple times throughout the years. Whenever I've had an odd afternoon or I've found myself in certain kinds of bookstores, I've never found even a mention of it, though I still have that old copy in a lockbox on my own bookshelf. I've searched for that motel along that old road, and though I've driven the length of that highway many, many times since, and have passed the landmarks I remember from that trip, I've never found that old valley, nor that lighthouse, nor that old motel ever again. In our final tale, we join Michelle in a rut. Not in a hole filled with dirty water, of course, but she's definitely stagnant. To break free from her ennui, she decides to go visit an old friend. But in this tale, shared with us by author Tim Gatos, a trip to get pizza leads to Michelle getting lost, maybe even trapped. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight and Sarah Thomas. So, can Michelle escape from downtown as the traffic roars past and the neon signs bear down on her? Or will she remain alone, lonely, and stuck? pleasures of travel, we are told, is the journey. The destination is great, but it is the process of getting there, the mix of anticipation and unplanned tangents that make it something to romanticize. 
Those impromptu decisions to go off the beaten path and take in the unexpected are what allow us to truly live. Thing is, at the end of all that, you still need the destination. That journey still needs a goal, a, a sense of purpose. Otherwise, all you're left with are a string of random encounters loosely fitted together. The destination is necessary for there to be any perspective gained, for all those accumulated experiences to be anchored to something greater than the mere sum of its parts. A couple summers ago, I needed that destination. I found myself being hit with the one-two of a breakup and a job loss. The breakup wasn't anyone's fault, really. The relationship had run its course. Austin was simply the one to say it out loud. The job, however, was the fault of an arrogant management that had read one too many books from Silicon Valley's Disruptors and believed we could pivot our moderately successful healthcare software into a very ill-defined app experience. It did not work out, of course, and I joined the third of the company being laid off as a result. The combination of a recently partner-free home and no reason to leave said home was not a good one for me mentally. I very much felt stuck in a rut, like my life was suddenly in a holding pattern and I was unsure of what direction I should be going. Austin and I had been together for four years. My, now previous, job had kept me employed for nearly six. This was a large chunk of my life, and what was dawning on me was what little substance it had provided. Not only had my relationship been on autopilot in its final stretch, but my job was the exact kind of unfulfilling paycheck generator my younger self had sworn to never stoop to. It is a gutting realization to have that you spent years of your life doing something simply because you could not think of an alternative, that your journey so far has been nothing more than a repetitive track going nowhere in particular. When I told this to my friend Cassie, she very enthusiastically invited me to come visit her and her boyfriend in Cleveland. It'll be just like college. And it's been too long since we've seen each other anyway. I reminded her that it was a nearly eight-hour drive from Madison, but she waved that away by reminding me that, no longer being employed, I had the time. She had a point, and I still had some time before my unemployment ran out. I figured I deserved a break. I deserved having a destination in mind to go towards. So, after a boring and uneventful drive, I knocked on the door to Cassie's half-duplex. There wasn't even time for me to manage a high before Cassie swept me up in a bear hug. The swiftness of it catching me off guard and temporarily taking the breath right out of me. Michelle! 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 Oh, I'm so happy you made it! After finally releasing me, she stepped aside so her boyfriend Samir could take my bags. I didn't realize until that moment how suffocating being on my own back in Madison had been. Not even a minute in her presence and the cheerfulness beaming out of Cassie had me feeling rejuvenated. This was why she so seamlessly made friends throughout college. She radiated a genuine excitement that would be borderline unbearable if it wasn't so sincere. She was the kind of person you couldn't help but like. And while the grind of adulthood had dulled it somewhat, it never left entirely. It was exactly what I needed at the moment. Cassie had a plan. Cassie always had a plan. After showing me the guest room and helping me get settled in, she commandeered the TV and plugged in her old game key with Mario Kart already inserted. After instructing Samir to make sure we always had plenty of snacks and wine, we went about destroying each other with different colored shells. Your boss sounds like an idiot. He may as well have tried to 
pivot to video. I nearly snorted wine through my nose. Top five diagnoses for that weird rash on your foot. Hosted by PewDiePie providing commentary over the clips. Ew, gross. Cassie grabbed a handful of cheddar and sour cream chips. I'm referring to PewDiePie, by the way. Samir brought us another bottle of wine and was clearly enjoying the commotion going on in their home. For the most part, I was able to forget all my troubles. Cassie was always good at diversions. Still, I could not escape it completely. As our carts raced around in circles, in the back of my mind I knew that I was still doing the same. After that first night, Cassie intended to give me a proper Cleveland tour, taking me to all their favorite restaurants and venues. It would have to start small, though. Cassie had not been able to get out of work the next day on such short notice, so I would unfortunately be on my own until she finished up for the day. But she assured me it would be worth it because she would run out and get Edison's pizza before coming home. My first Cleveland treat. I could tell she felt bad that she would be leaving me unattended after making the trip here, but honestly, it was fine. Just being somewhere else in and of itself had improved my mood, and I was grateful regardless of how little to do there might be. With both Cassie and Samir at work, I spent the majority of the day watching TV and looking for any job leads online. It was calming, though not very exciting. So when I saw my phone light up with an incoming text from Cassie in the early evening, I was happy my solitude would be nearing an end. Sorry, work is running long. Samir is stuck too. Could you please run out to pick up some slices from Edison's? Pay you back. Sorry again. Not the message I was hoping to see. I wanted to text back that after driving the entire day prior, I really did not want to get back in my car and navigate to an area I had never been before. I wanted to say I would be fine just having a late dinner. But Cassie was always difficult to say no to. Since she was so genuine and open, denying her felt cruel. Especially when she was offering me a place to take a holiday from my troubles. And really, was making a pizza run so terrible after I'd been given free reign of their home for the whole day? Or after the three bottles of wine we went through the night before? I googled the address and made sure I verified with Cassie that it was indeed the correct Edison's. It was in one of the neighborhoods surrounding the downtown area. Tremont. Cassie had mentioned it in passing before as it was home to a number of restaurants and bars she and Samir would frequent. It was also, she had warned me, full of one-way streets and devoid of parking. Stellar. I waited until a quarter to six before I put the address in my phone and jumped in the car, figuring I had timed things out well enough to not return too soon before Cassie did. The weather was clear, nothing but blue skies, so I was fairly confident I could make a good time. Twenty minutes later, I pulled off the freeway and onto a roundabout, the first sign I was unlikely to enjoy navigating the area. I remember reading once about how roundabouts actually make traffic more efficient and safer and are even better for the environment due to the cars spending less time idle. All well and good, but in the moment, none of those good arguments mattered. Roundabouts have a disorienting effect, especially when you're in unfamiliar territory and are not expecting it. 
It's an endless parade of vehicles with which you need to find a place, only to immediately excise yourself, lest you become stuck in its loop. But apparently I got there at the right time as there were a few other cars, and I was able to make my pass without the accompanying stress I expected. Lucky me, I remember thinking at the time. Now I wonder if it was simply a cruel joke being played on me, the universe giving me one last sense of triumph before the nightmare that followed. According to the map on my phone, getting to Edison's was a pretty straightforward task from here. I exited the roundabout on West 14th, and all I needed to do was drive down at a couple miles, make a right on Kenilworth Avenue, which would turn into College Avenue, and then take another right on Professor Avenue. The pizza shop would be right there on the left. Alright, it didn't seem too difficult. And it seemed to bypass having to navigate the one-way streets Cassie had warned me about. Even better. I turned onto Kenilworth and continued on to college. It was a nice evening and people were walking about, bouncing between the various buildings, bars, and restaurants. It had a nice feel to it. Character is a bit of a cliche way to describe these kinds of older neighborhoods, but it felt apt. Some of the buildings you could tell were newer and made with a clear intent of gentrification in mind. But most of Tremont had the feel of a place that had soaked up experiences and was not afraid to show it. I could understand why Cassie had spoken so highly of the area. Turn right at the next street. My phone piped up to tell me I needed to turn right, but when I looked, I didn't see Professor Avenue. Instead, there was Thurman Avenue, but I couldn't turn down it as it was a one-way street moving the opposite direction. Had I missed Professor? It wouldn't have been the first time I had completely missed a turn or an exit. Clearly, I had been too engrossed in looking at my surroundings and hadn't been paying attention. Classic Michelle. Plus, the alternative would be that the street had just up and disappeared, and that was preposterous. It seemed that way at the time, anyway. The next intersection was West 7th, and after recalculating, my phone was telling me I needed to make a right here. It seemed I would have to loop back around. Fine. Seems like it would just add a few minutes. I turned and drove down the street. From the looks of it, West 7th was a parking street. Lots of cars lining the sides of the roads, and lots of people walking from here towards the other intersections where the action was. To my left was a series of thin residential houses with the occasional narrow street between them. Compared to the rest of Tremont, it almost felt like everything was collapsing in on itself. I did my best to ignore the knot forming in my stomach. There was no need to freak out over missing a turn, I told myself. It happens all of the time. Turn right at the next street. I came upon the next intersection with a street called Starkweather. It was here I would need to turn right, head back to West 14th, and start the whole attempt over. Making the turn, the first thing I noticed was a church with a large greenish dome topped with crosses protruding from its roof. St. Theodosius, the sign read. After numerous restaurants and relatively cramped residential areas, the church stood out in its grandeur, feeling almost out of place. It demanded my attention until I heard the phone give me a command to turn right. I knew that couldn't be correct, 
Not only had I just looked at my phone to see what directions it was giving, it wouldn't make sense geographically. I may have been new to the area, but I was still pretty sure I understood the general idea of how physical space worked. Not that it mattered. A do not enter sign stood Sentinel 50 feet away. Apparently the rest of Starkweather was a one-way street and I was now heading upriver. I was confused. The directions had said I could take this all the way down to West 14th. Didn't they? Had I missed this the same way I missed turning onto Professor earlier? I was beginning to feel very gaslit by the neighborhood. The knot in my stomach was expanding. My phone was telling me to turn onto Thurman and I did because I had no other options. Okay, okay, this was fine, I told myself. No more gawking at the local architecture. That, that was all. It was time to focus on the task at hand. I needed to get the pizza and get out of here. Get back to Cassie's and enjoy the evening. That was all there was to it. No need to make such a big deal over getting turned around a bit. Thurman took me through another residential neighborhood with houses packed tight. Locals sat on their porches and some couples walked the sidewalks hand in hand. I tried to take comfort in this. However weird all the one-way streets were, however stressed the missed turns were making me, this was still a neighborhood where people lived. It was manageable. I took some deep breaths. This was fine. I was fine. I even flashed a smile at one of the couples, though they did not appear to take any notice. The sense of calm lasted until Thurman brought me back to College Avenue. Across the intersection was a do not enter sign blocking off the rest of the street. On my side of the intersection, there was a right turn only sign. No. No, 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 no. The word kept repeating in my head. Turning right wouldn't work. I remembered when I passed the street earlier, it was after I had already missed where I was supposed to get onto Professor. Making a right here would send me back through the loop I had just completed. This was all wrong. How was I supposed to get, well, anywhere? I jumped as a car honked their horn behind me and instinctively turned the wheel to make a right turn. Okay, whatever, I thought. I, I'll just keep my eyes peeled for any other streets I could try and take. But there was nothing else. There were no other streets or intersections until I found myself back at West 7th. Shit. I turned right again, my heart rate steadily rising. I'd have to make another pass, but the voice in the back of my head inquired, To what end? But dwelling on that wasn't going to help me. Keep looking forward. People were still walking from their street parking, which was reassuring at first. But now, something was off. They weren't really walking anymore. While they were smiles, their movements were quicker and sharper. It came across as if they were in tremendous pain, but trying not to show it. It reminded me of my dad carrying the big boxes of Christmas decorations up and down the stairs, insisting his back was fine. Never better, actually. When it's one person, you can kind of accept it. 
Seeing a street full of people do that simultaneously was deeply unsettling. I grabbed my phone to demand answers of it. Between the uncooperative streets and the shambling citizens, I was feeling done with Tremont. But when I looked, the directions insisted I had reached my destination. Poking and prodding and swiping the screen, I tried to go back and get the app to recalculate the route, but it remained stubbornly frozen. I screamed internally at the useless brick and tossed it onto the passenger seat. Shit. Coming up on stark weather again, I turned right. There was the church, looming even larger than it had before. The domes and the crosses sitting atop them seemed exaggerated, an expressionist painting coming to life. There was absolutely no way this was the same church I had passed earlier. The speed at which my heart was beating suddenly became very noticeable. This wasn't just an issue of being lost or missing a turn anymore. Something was fundamentally, terrifyingly wrong. Once again, there was a do not enter sign telling me the rest of the street was off limits. I turned on to Thurman again, though I couldn't really explain why. No part of me thought it would help me get to my destination or even out of the area to speed back to Cassie's. The best answer I can offer is that, in my increasing state of panic, I was an autopilot, still somehow clinging to the sense that if I followed the rules and did what I was expected to do, eventually it would all work out. So here I was, passing by the cramped housing once more. Out of the corner of my eye, they seemed like they were so close together they overlapped. But when I turned to actually look, the space between them returned. Get a fucking grip, Michelle. A voice in my head instructed, only for another voice to chime in with. To what end? I could see the locals peering at me from their porches, their eyes following me as I drove past. Even those who were previously walking hand in hand had frozen in place to turn and glare at me. For a brief moment, I tried to explain this away by telling myself they noticed the same car driving down in a short span of time and were perhaps suspicious. It was a futile effort. For the first time since this ordeal began, I felt like I was in danger. Being lost was one thing. The looks these people were now giving held an implicit threat. The trouble was, I had no idea what I was supposed to do in order to appease them. The intersection at college was coming up again. The signs from my previous encounter were all still there, telling me that turning right was the only option available. Fuck these one-way streets. Fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. I was not going to turn right. Mm -mm, Not this time. I would take whatever ticket they wrote me, pay whatever fine they would cite me, as long as I could get the hell out of there. I was done playing by these arbitrary rules, done freaking out over my loss of agency. I was making a decision, making a stand, and I turned the steering wheel and hit the gas a little harder than necessary. Now I would just head back the way I came and get back to Cassie's. When they asked where the pizza was, I would just say I got lost, which wouldn't be a lie. She'd probably even laugh about it. No harm, no foul, and I could let the ordeal fade into a memory. None of that came to pass. It didn't take long after making the turn that I could see my plan had not worked, because just ahead of me was West 7th. 
No, no, this was impossible. I, I knew I had turned left this time. There was no way I was back here. Fuck, fuck. My breathing became uneven and I realized I, I had begun to cry. I could try turning left here as well, but it was obvious now the signs were merely a courtesy. They were here simply to allow me to maintain some illusion of normalcy, of, of choice. A means to encourage me to keep going even in the face of zero progress. Wiping the tears away, I turned right. What else could I do? There was no point in fighting whatever powers were keeping me here. In my defeat, though, I clearly remember thinking that maybe something else would change on this pass. Something different that could point to a path home. I was half right. Things had, in fact, changed from my last lap, but nothing was for the better. The sky had taken on a smoky red hue, and the scent of sulfur and metal hit me like a punch. The buildings and houses on the street were in disrepair, with some missing entire sections of their roofs and outer walls. Most were covered with scorch marks. The cars weren't parked on the street so much as abandoned, covered with dents and their windows smashed in. It was a hellscape. The aftermath of something terrible that I did not want to dwell on. Unfortunately, even hellscapes have inhabitants. Despite the carnage, there were still people walking on the sidewalk and along the street. Only they weren't really people anymore. They staggered and lurched themselves forward, some with misshapen arms hanging from their shoulders, others with limbs missing entirely. But the worst were the faces. They were stretched out and deformed, as if powerful hands had grabbed a hold and pulled on them. There were mouths left chillingly wide open, and even eye sockets that were too big for the eyes themselves. And they had all noticed me. I felt something hit the passenger side of the car and saw what once may have been a young man pressing his contorted face against the window. Fight or flight took over immediately and I hit the gas pedal. Before the grotesque face slid past me, though, I got a better look than I ever wanted. His jaw was hanging past the bottom of his neck, and his right eye socket drooped down beside his nose. Its skin had a moldy, splotchy texture to it and a greenish-gray tint. And while it spoke no words, it let out a loud breath, and I swear I could hear menace in just that exhale. I sped down the street, screaming. For a moment, the looping purgatory was forgotten and replaced with an endless well of terror and desperation. I was caught between feeling certain I was going to die and confident I would be trapped here forever. More people were emerging from the remnants of the buildings and encroaching on the road. They were trying to cut me off. Why? What did they want with me? Why was this happening? And among all of those immediate concerns, why the fuck couldn't I get where I wanted to be? <laughs> my foot pushed the gas pedal into the floor of my car as I tried to get past as many of them as possible. Maybe if I just powered through, I would be okay. <laughs> Disjointed hands slapped at the side of the car as I drove by, hoping to find traction. 
In front of me, large bulks of misshapen masts slid across the hood of my car, smearing streaks of blood and pus onto the windshield. Despite the gas pedal being crushed into the floor of the car, I was beginning to slow down. I would not just be able to power through this. There were too many of them in the street ahead of me, stretching out endlessly and... Wait... Had the street gotten longer? Oh no, 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 no. Frantically, I began looking for... Well, I had no idea. For as much as my mind was spinning, nothing was actually being produced. My breath was getting caught in sobs. I had no idea what to do, and I realized that for my whole life, I may never have had the idea of what I should do. For a moment, this actually seemed scarier than the throngs of monsters trying to get into my car. Then from my peripheral, I saw a road coming up on my right, and without even considering which street I was turning into, I yanked the steering wheel as hard as I could and made a screeching right turn. St. Theodosius Church leaned on my left. Maybe it was Starkweather I turned back on to. Maybe it didn't matter, and regardless of my decision, I was going to end up here. Clearly, where I thought I was going had long since stopped mattering. I was here now, and the church had grown yet again. Taller and narrower and more imposing. That would have been enough to send me into a new round of panic, but it was not the only change dragging itself from the steps leading to the church entrance was a huge, hulking, deer-like creature. Two limbs split into four hooves each at its front and nothing but bloody stumps in the rear. Three sets of antlers sprouted from its head above hollow eyes and a snout that protruded a disturbing length. I slammed on the brakes as this... this thing approached the middle of the road in front of me. Through the rearview mirror, I could see the mass of lurching, distorted people had continued making their way toward me. I was trapped. This was it, I thought. Might as well just wait for one monster or the other to break through the barrier of my car and drag me into the street. Would they eat me? <laughs> Tear apart and scatter my limbs? I let the tears stream down my face as I waited for the end. My life had led me here, to an end without having much to show for it. It was that last thought that hit me. Fine, I thought. Maybe I didn't accomplish what I wanted to. Maybe I coasted by, but not anymore. I wasn't just going to wait. I would do something. There was no way I could fight all of these things, but I still had flight. Determined to regain agency, I unbuckled the seatbelt, pushed open the driver's side door, and readied myself to make a run for it. Where to? I had no idea. But at least I would be taking action. Stepping onto the asphalt, I was ready. I would sprint towards the church and cut across to get around the beast. The street beyond it appeared devoid of any other monsters, and it seemed too large to be quick. At least, I hoped. But before I could make a move, the dear creature turned its head towards me, locking its empty eye sockets on me. I froze. 
and immediately I knew this hesitation had almost certainly doomed me. The beast raised its head, and its jaws opened frighteningly wide, displaying rows of teeth all of different shapes and sizes, only to belt out a loud mechanical honk that brought my hands to my ears. Then all at once, the world snapped back. The sky was back to its clear blue, though now it was tinged with sunset. There were no more monsters or deteriorating buildings. I was standing outside my car in the middle of normalized stark weather with a regular-sized St. Theodosius to my left and cars honking their horns at me, wondering what the hell I was doing. After a few more seconds of standing there dumbfounded and staring at the angrily blaring vehicles, I climbed back into my car and began driving. Everything was normal again. Everything was fine, minus the clearly pissed-off drivers giving me dirty looks. I punched in Cassie's address. I didn't care about pizza or food. I just wanted to get back to familiar ground and hug her. My phone spit out the instructions, and after the longest three minutes of my life, I pulled back onto West 14th, leaving Tremont behind. As I joined the traffic on the freeway, I began to cry again. This time from feeling more relief than I had ever before experienced. Both Cassie and Samir were home by the time I got back. Arriving sans pizza, I mumbled some kind of apology and excuse about getting lost. I don't remember exactly what I said or how it came out, but she wasn't upset. Instead laughed about how that is so Tremont before informing Samir he was now in charge of finding us dinner. (laughs) He scrunched his face in mock annoyance, causing Cassie to laugh, and suddenly I was laughing too until the laughter turned into tears. Cassie was a bit caught off guard and asked me if everything was okay. For a moment, I almost told her. I almost told her about the whole ordeal. I think the reason I didn't was the fear that she would simply take me back to Tremont, either to show me it was all in my head or worse, to try and investigate. Instead, I blamed it on having spent too much time alone recently and that my emotional responses were simply heightened. Better to keep quiet and try to enjoy the rest of my time with Cassie and hope time would make it easier to stop thinking about the hell I escaped. The rest of the trip was enjoyable. Cassie had secured time off from her job until I headed back to Madison, so I didn't need to contend with being or traveling alone the next few days. Cassie and Samir took me to some of their favorite restaurants and a surprisingly intricate wildlife center attached to the National History Museum. And in general did their best to cheer me up. For the most part, it worked. There were many times I was genuinely enjoying myself. But any time we were in the car, I could feel my entire body tighten. For the trips they used their own phones for directions, I had to make a conscious effort not to stare at the navigation and keep the anxiety off my face. Eventually, it was time to leave. I somehow managed to hold it together as I said goodbye and Cassie embraced me. Call me when you make it home. And call me anytime you need to. She was a truly great friend. And it was my desire to not have her worry that probably allowed me to not break down completely as I got behind the wheel of my car. 
But even still, as I backed out from the parking space outside their duplex, for just a moment it seemed like Cassie felt something was wrong. Her smile briefly dropping as she watched me pull away. Getting to the highway was the worst of it. My hands white-knuckled the steering wheel as I turned onto streets and prayed it would not be one I had already traveled down. But I did manage to get onto the freeway, and from there the drive back was as uneventful as the drive into Cleveland. With each passing mile, my muscles untensed just a little more until I was back in Madison. Being able to drive down familiar streets nearly brought tears of joy to my eyes. I, I had never been so happy to be home. While I avoided leaving the house for a couple days, eventually the trauma of Tremont began to fade further into memory, replaced with a renewed drive to move forward. I became more deliberate in the jobs I applied for, focusing on places and positions I could feel genuine excitement for. After going on a few job interviews, I eventually landed one of them. I began dating again, though, to markedly less success. Still, everything seemed to be getting back on track. Until last week. I had been driving home late from the office. We were in a bit of a crunch, and management had been asking everyone who could work to work extra hours. Not the most encouraging sign, and I found myself suppressing thoughts of my last job. Familiar thoughts of whether or not I was wasting my time. I was exhausted and zoned out a bit. You ever have those moments where you go on autopilot behind the wheel and don't fully remember getting to where you are? That happened here as I turned into Mineral Point Road and realized I hadn't been paying attention. For a moment I thought, haven't I already driven down this street? I pushed the thought out of my mind, telling myself I just needed to focus, but I could already feel the sweat moving down my forehead. Making it to the next intersection, I stopped at the traffic light. A familiar knot in my stomach was forming, and I dutifully tried to ignore it. Outside the passenger side window, I saw a woman walking past, only to realize she wasn't really walking. She was lurching and her face had a peculiar, elongated shape to it. Without warning, she stopped to turn and look at me, but I didn't wait to get a good look at her. I hit the gas, ran the red light, and didn't stop until I reached my apartment. I called into work the next day, eking out an excuse about my car not working and managing to convince them to let me work from home. And home is where I have stayed the past few days. I know I cannot stay here indefinitely. I'll need to run out to a store and they won't allow me to work remotely much longer. I keep trying to tell myself there is nothing wrong with the woman I saw driving home, that she simply had hurt her leg and that there wasn't proper lighting and so no wonder she looked a little peculiar to me. I kept telling myself there's nothing to be afraid of. I tell myself these things as I make my way from the bedroom to the kitchen to my makeshift office and back to the bedroom each day. I tell myself these things in hopes that maybe tomorrow it will be different. And maybe tomorrow I will leave. Maybe tomorrow something will change. 
As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace no sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit the NoSleepPodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.